Okay, Matthew 21, verses 23 through 46. Last time we looked in on the very first Palm Sunday, and Jesus, you remember, came into Jerusalem for the Passover feast for the last time before he would go to the cross. And he came in on a donkey, uh, a colt, a foal of a donkey, and he rode into Jerusalem as the humble king. And it was in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 and other prophecies. Uh, this is the day that the Lord has made. We'll be glad and rejoice in it. That is about that day that we saw last week, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, also known as the triumphal entry. And when Jesus was going into town, uh, the followers around him, they gave up their cloaks and they put him on the donkey as a makeshift saddle and he sat on that and then some of them, other ones took their garments, put them on the ground and they also cut palm branches and put them on the ground. That's where we get Palm Sunday from. And Jesus wrote in the holy or the, the humble, lowly king. And uh, interesting, rather than on a war horse like most kings, Jesus comes on a donkey signifying he's the king of peace and he's a lowly, humble king. And he rides into Jerusalem, up the mount, uh, you know, and it would be very visible what was going on. And people are receiving him and they understand that he's the fulfillment of prophecy. And so they start crying out, Hosanna, yeah, the name of David, Hosanna, the son of David, uh, and which means save, we pray, something to that effect, save us now, we pray, save us, and so they recognize Jesus as the Messiah, and they're all, you know, screaming and praising him. Interestingly enough, by the end of the week, a lot of the people will be saying, crucify him, but for now, they think he's going to save them from Roman oppression and he's the long-awaited Messiah and uh, they think he's going to come fulfill their expectations and um, so he comes in and that's last week and then he goes into the temple and when he goes into the temple you see a kind of a different picture of Jesus than maybe you're used to. You see for the second time he goes into the temple and he goes up to the tables of the money changers and he flips them over and he goes up to the people that are selling doves and he drives them out. And those people, what they were doing was they were essentially uh, making merchandise out of God's temple. And Jesus says, uh, my father's house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And he drives the commercialism out of the church. And all of the Christian bookstores go out of business. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Bad joke, right? There, nobody makes merchandise out of Christianity today, do they? And that was last time. And so Jesus then, he left the temple and he goes and he stays in Bethany and then wakes up the next day, he curses the fig tree. It's a living parable about the you know, fruit, fruitlessness of Israel. And then he um, is still going and now it's that same day. Now, in this passage, what we see, he's back in the temple teaching. I love that, by the way. He goes in, flips the tables over, leaves, everybody's upset, comes back the next day and he starts teaching again. <clears throat> This time, the religious rulers, as usual, are quite upset with Jesus, and they challenge his authority. So he really takes it to them in this message. He essentially will say to them that the authority that he's operating on is from God. And because they are failing to receive him, they're rejecting his authority, they're going to have their privileged position of blessing taken from them, and they are going to experience judgment. And that's what he's going to tell these religious rulers this time. Um, I've called the message a question of authority because that's what they're doing is they're, they're wrestling this whole time with the authority of Jesus. Who is this guy? Does he have authority to do the things that he's doing? That's a good question for us. We live our lives and we say, 
who is this Jesus and does he have authority over our lives, you know? And we're going to make some points that apply to our life, even though the majority of this is him kind of going back and forth with the religious authorities. There are some things that are really relevant to us that we'll look at at the end. All the blessings of being God's chosen people hinge upon what we do with Jesus, whether we reject him or receive him. Our sinful nature, it wants to be its own authority and will push Jesus out if possible. We must never expect to live a blessed life as God's people, pridefully rejecting his authority over our lives. When I read about the religious authorities, I see some of them in me or me in them. You know, there's a part of my heart, this sinful part of my heart that wants to reject Jesus' authority over my life. And so when I read these things, it causes me to scan myself and to say, are there places in my life where I'm rejecting the authority of Christ? And so I think we'll see that as we go through here. The outline's very simple. It's just a three-part outline. <clears throat> because Jesus has authority, we must submit to him. And so in the outline, we'll see three points here. Rather than avoiding the issue of Jesus' authority, rather than avoiding the issue, we should embrace Jesus' authority. Number two, rather than uh, give lip service, we should live subject to Jesus' authority. And number three, rather than push God out, we ought to be broken under his authority. So those are the three points there. And starting at the first point in verse 23. That same day, the same day, the Sadducees, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. That's not going to work because you're going to get really confused about that. Now, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority, authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, uh, we do not know. He said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Monday of Passion Week, Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem teaching and the authorities have a problem, and they say, authority, by what authority are you doing these things? Now, that's even kind of a fair question, right? If you've got this guy that came into the temple, and he's, you know, imagine some guy coming in here, and he's flipping the tables over, and by what authority are you doing this? That's an okay question. The authority is the key word here. You notice it four times just in those verses right there. Every time you're studying the Bible, if you see a word repeated four times, you know, it's, it's a good idea if it's within four verses. It gives you a clue to what the author is intending to get across. Now, so the whole idea here is if Jesus were to answer their question directly, if he says, the authority I'm on came from God, well, then they could label him as like a fanatic, you know, and... and It'd be easy to get rid of him. That's what they want to do is they want to kill him. If he says he's on man's authority, then everybody would just disregard him. So it's either they're kind of get him in, you know, is he going to get the death penalty right here? You know, they're hoping so. But 
he asks a very clever question. He reframes it, and he says, uh, well, what about the baptism of John? Where was that from? You know what he's referring to, right? How John the, baptism was, John the Baptist was baptizing Jews in the Jordan River. He was saying, repent of your sin, come out here and be baptized. Remember, that's where Jesus was baptized, you know, a month ago, last year in our study of Matthew. So where is that from? Whose authority was he doing that on? And, you know, was he sent by God or from man? And it's interesting. Jesus put them right on the spot, right? Because if they uh, say, well, John was just some crazy dude out there. He was eating locusts. and They're going to immediately lose the respect of the people because the people believed that John was a prophet. But if they put two and two together and said, John's out there on the authority of God doing that, then it's pretty simple. Why did the religious establishment reject the prophet of God then? So they're in this position. Now, it's interesting to me how many times as this scene and a lot of scenes happened that this is an actually, this could have been an opportunity for repentance, Right? This isn't something that's necessarily said in the text, but when you look at it, these guys could have said right there, you know, that was from God, and we've been really screwing up here, (laughs) you know? And so you're right, Jesus, uh, and that this is an opportunity to repent. But what they did when they were confronted with the issue of, you know, does Jesus have authority, was they decided instead to avoid the issue, right? Uh, We don't know. They were more concerned about what people thought about them, about their privileged position, about the money that came along with being a religious professional in those days. And they just decided to avoid the issue. Right away, they could have benefited from embracing Jesus' authority rather than avoiding the issue. That's kind of an application for us today, too. If you look in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, you say, why did ultimately these guys reject the authority of Jesus, right? Why does anybody really reject God? Well, it says in John, chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, it says, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. That's the real issue. It's not that they didn't have plenty of proof. It's not that they didn't understand scriptures better than anybody else. They understood Jesus was fulfilling these prophecies. It's an issue of morality. It's an issue of the will. It's an issue of the heart. They don't want to be exposed. Their deeds are evil. So they decided to avoid the issue. I would suggest that this is a very common human condition is the last thing I want to do is come correct with God when I know my deeds are evil, right? And so I'd rather just avoid the issue, you know? And people do that today. Well, what do you make of that Bible? I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. Well, what do you make of Christianity? I don't know. What do you make of the fact that this Bible verse says that Christians are supposed to be doing this? I don't know. Is that the interpretation of it? Have you checked out the Greek? You know, we want to try to avoid authority. And so sometimes that's a very human thing is to try to just avoid the issue rather than embrace Jesus' authority, right? So now Jesus is going to give two parables. And because they're rejecting his authority, these parables are going to illustrate what's happening to them 
as a result of them rejecting Jesus' authority. Number two, verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and he said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Well, they said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. You saw it. You did not afterwards relent and believe him. So this parable that Jesus gives is a parable of contrast. You're contrasting between these two sons, right? So this man had two sons. Now, this is like farm culture here in Iowa, right? Like it was maybe a generation or two ago, if you had kids, you expected them to work on the farm and, and they would. And so the father has every right to say to his kids, go out and work in the vineyard. And he goes to the first one and uh, he says, uh, go out and get to work. And the guy says, no, I'm not going to do it. But later on, he changes his mind and he says, you know, I should go do that. Um, and for whatever reason, he changes his mind and he gets to work. And the first um, son says, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll go out and work. And then he never did anything. The father calls them both individually. Both of these sons are in a privileged position because they have a good father. They've got a vineyard to work in. They've got meaningful stuff to do. They've got a purpose. They're both in a privileged position. They both have an individual calling on their life. Two different responses. Jesus says, which one of them, in verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? Now, it seems very simple, right? And they get it right away. Well, the first one, of course, is the one that did the will of the father. Let me give you the keys here. Obviously, the man that owns the vineyard, that's obviously God, right? The father. Uh, the first son, these are sinners that initially refuse to do God's will, but later repent. So they said no, but they did the right thing eventually. Jesus likens them to those that were coming to John's baptisms, the, heart, you know, the, the heart, harlots and the tax collectors. He likens them to them. This is the person that turns away from God says, I don't want anything to do with God, but eventually comes around and repents and believes and trusts in God and, and does what God wants. The second son, those are those who say the right things, but they don't do the right things. Now, yeah, the same thing going on today in the church as was going on then. The, the same thing in the parable, right? These are the people who claim they believe the Bible's the word of God, but they don't do what it says. These are those who claim that Jesus is Lord, but they still continue to act as their own master, these are those who claim to believe God, but yet they trust in themselves, right? They claim Jesus is Lord, but don't keep his commandments, you know, uh, claim to be servants, but they serve themselves. Now, these people are in a very bad position because they're sinning against what they know to be right, right? 
the father called them. They said, I'll go because they knew it was right, but then they didn't do it. You know? That puts you in a worse position when you know the right thing to do, but you don't do it. That puts you in a worse position. They're in a bad position here. Now, the main point really is who are God's true people? Jesus is talking to these religious rulers, this religious establishment. Who are God's two true people? The people who live for him. Or those who claim but don't live for him. Verse 32, the tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Now that would have been an absolutely shocking statement. That's like going and walking into the most, whatever your mind conjures up when you think of like religious professional, you know, and, and you walk in there and you say, look, in Mason City here, all these people on the corner that you see, these, these meth addicts, these prostitutes, these people, they're all going into the kingdom of God before you people with your robes and stuff. It would have been a very shocking statement to them. Now, why did the religious rulers, you know, part of their rejection, why did they, why did the Jews by and large reject Jesus so much? Well, one of the reasons certainly is, you know, you think about the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the harlots and all the other stuff like that and the people that are aware of their sin. It's like that song we sang where in the chorus it says, empty-handed I rejoice. They understood when they came to God that they were going to be dependent upon his forgiveness and grace, right? They didn't have really anything to offer the situation. And they come and they receive. They heard the gospel. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor, you're weak, and I'll give you rest. They understood the gospel call was just to come, be forgiven. They knew their place. They knew that they were not right with God. And they came and they received forgiveness. Now, on the other hand, the Jews in this time, by and large, and you can't say all of them, but they had this religion that was a perverted version of Judaism. And the reason they believed that they were right with God was because of their works, their rituals, their behaviors. And so that's hard to part with that. If you believe today that you're right with God because of the works that you do and because of the traditions you keep and because of the religion that you perform, it's very hard to say, you know, it's hard for you to sing that song, Empty Handed Rejoice, because you're not empty handed. You're, you've got all kinds of things in your hands. You've got your church attendance in your hands, your baptism in your hands, your impeccable obedience to God's law. You've got all those things in your hands, actually. And you can't get into the kingdom with those things in your hands right? And they were a very self-righteous people. They said, we're sons of Abraham. We, we were born in a Christian nation, or we were born in a, you know, in the right, we have the right lineage. So they said, we have the right lineage, we keep the right commandments, we do the right sacrifices, we do all this stuff. We don't really need God because we do all this stuff ourselves, you know? So it's, it's hard to part with that. And when Jesus comes and he says, all of your religious stuff, like, you know, whether it's good or not, doesn't, doesn't count for much, you know, or anything when you're talking about coming into heaven and being made righteous. Like, nobody's right with God because of the things that they do. 
The only reason anybody's right with God is because of the things Jesus did. And they don't like that. And self-righteous people don't like that. And there are many people that say the right things, but their heart never truly comes with nothing in their hands and just receives the pure grace and forgiveness of the Lord and says, there's nothing in my hands I bring. Uh, you know, simply to Jesus I cling and what he did. And that's, it's really hard to part with. In fact, I was talking to a gentleman yesterday that said that he was witnessing to somebody at the airport and he said to the person, how do you know if you were to die tonight that you would go to heaven? And I'm guessing what the response is going to be before it even comes out of his mouth. And sure enough, and if you guys have ever shared the gospel with anybody, you know, like the biggest thing that comes out of people's mouth, first thing, what is it? <laughs> Everybody in the church knows it. Hey, good job. <laughs> that makes you righteous with God that you knew that. No, I'm just kidding. It doesn't. But you know what I'm saying, right? You say, hey, how do you know you're right with God? Oh, well, you know, I've done some bad things in my life, but I think God understands. I think God kind of weighs out the things. No, that's, that's Muslims. They believe that God has the scales, and you're trying to outdo the bad works with good works. That's not Christianity. Christianity is like this. Your bad works, and there's no budging the scale. That's, that's it. Your works are bad. They're filthy. Every righteous, every act that you think that makes you righteous with God, Jesus sees that as filthiness, right? All of us. All of us. So when you go to these religious people that have their position, their prominence, and their authority, and their religion, it's hard to tell them, like, that, that doesn't count for anything when it comes to righteousness. They say, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm righteous because I can point to all these things that I do. I'm blameless in keeping the law. I keep the right traditions. I do this. So that's a shocking statement, you know, and you, you kind of think through the logic of it. Why would it, why would it seem that the tax collectors and harlots would go into the kingdom before these other people? Because they don't have anything to cling to. What am I going to cling to? I screwed up my credit report. I've been divorced a few times. You know, I've had abortions. You know, I'm living on the street. You know, what am I going to bring to God and say, hey, this makes me righteous. I don't have anything, <laughs> you know? So it just kind of makes sense, right, that maybe certain types of people understand the gospel more than others, right? Another opportunity for repentance right there, and they didn't get it, you know, because religious people don't need to repent, right? So that parable there it illustrates one of the things I think is really practical is, you know, the danger of saying but not doing. And I might suggest to all of us, especially as Calvary Chapel people, that it gets, Calvary Chapel movement's amazing. We teach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But I'm telling you, just because we go to a church that teaches the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter, that's a part of what it means to be a Christian, to study the Bible. It's just a part of it. And so we could all fall into this pretty easily of just saying, yeah, you know, I'm a solid on fire Christian. And it's like, well, there's this other part of serving and, and doing the works, you know, not that the works make you righteous, but the gospel is, you know, like James said, don't, don't be hearers of the word only, right? But be doers of the word. In fact, it says that in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 24. We want to make sure we don't just give lip service, but we also live subject to Jesus' authority. Now, the last point. This uh, parable here has to do with the theme of replacement. So Jesus is going to talk to these religious people, and he's going to say, look, God's going to actually uh, take his privileged position from you and bring in 
some people that they actually hated at the time, and, and they're going to you know, get the blessing. So verse 33, here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. He leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. And last of all, he sent his son to them saying, they'll respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now a parable about a man that owns land and he planted a vineyard. Uh, he hired some vine dressers to take care of it. Landowner sends some of his people to collect fruit from the vine dressers. Uh, vine dressers, they uh, treat these people terribly, these messengers, killing them, stoning them. It was a common practice in the time for a landowner to lease out his land, let some people farm it, and then they would pay the rent or whatever the lease with some of the crops. So that's what's going on here. The Old Testament often uses a picture of a vineyard to speak of Israel, uh, particularly Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. If you want to read that in your time, it'll contrast with what is being said here. So you guys kind of get the idea of this one, right? That God's the, the landowner, and then this, the vine dressers are Israel. Originally, they're the ones with the privilege of being uh, working the vineyard, supposed to bring fruit, and then God sends the prophets to them to warn them over and over again to kind of try to get them right with God, to try to collect fruit. Uh, he, he's coming in to get the payment. What would the payment be? You know, kind of producing what God wanted to be done, godliness, you know, in the vineyard. And he, they come one after another and they say, hey, uh, you know, what's going on essentially, you know, warning them. And so they get rid of all God's prophets. They kill them, they stone them. Finally, they send, the landowner sends his son, and they kill the son. So it's obviously talking about the crucifixion and the rejection of Jesus Christ. So Jesus knew at this point about their plot to kill him, and that's what the parable is about. The landowner, Israel was supposed to be taking care of the vines, the, according uh, to the vineyard. Uh, they didn't do it, um, and in fact, killed the prophets instead, finally killed the son. Verse 40 says, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and is it marvelous in our eyes? Therefore, I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers. So the theme of replacement right there, you know, what do you suppose he'll do? And then kind of, isn't it interesting how they condemn themselves? Oh, he'll take care of those wicked vine dressers and yeah, it's like you're talking about yourself. <clears throat> this is kind of foreshadowing, looking forward to the church, right? 
that God's going to start working with a different group called the church. Those who will come by faith, doing the will of the Father, the land over, those that will be believing and trusting. Verse 42, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and is it marvelous in our eyes? So Jesus is quoting Psalm 118 here, and if they really understood the prophecy, it would result in them submitting their lives to Jesus. See, the idea of a cornerstone, this is a stone laid at the corner of a building and it binds the two walls together to strengthen them. It's used symbolically as a you know, symbol of strength or prominence. So what Jesus is saying essentially is he's like, I'm the cornerstone that binds all this stuff together. And, and what you're doing, you were the builders. Israel was the builders, right? And, and they've rejected the most important stone of the building that they were supposed to be building, right? Because I've heard that Bob Marley song where this is the chorus. I don't know if you have or not. I always used to hear that before I was walking with the Lord. Bob Marley sings this in a chorus. I was like, oh. and then when I heard this, I'm like, huh. Oh, that's not even really useless information. I mean, do what you want with that. Okay. Well, it's interesting is about Jesus, you know. It's about rejecting Jesus Christ, you know. Pretty serious thing. Jesus is the stone that binds it all together. It's all about Jesus. Therefore, I say to you, verse 43 says, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to another nation bearing the fruits of it. That's the point of the parable. That's what Jesus is saying is, you Jews, you've rejected me. You've questioned my authority. You haven't submitted to my authority. And so now your privileged position is going to be taken from you and it's going to be given to the church. And that's what's going to happen next. By the way, when you've studied the whole of the Bible, doesn't this just blow your mind, the sovereignty of God? He creates Adam and Eve. He, he understands they're going to sin. He puts them out of the garden. He, makes, he covers them. It goes into this, these two nations. The nations reject Jesus. He brings in this other nation to make them jealous. They come back in, Romans 9, 10, 11. And eventually it just the sovereignty of God, and it just blows your mind uh, when you look at this whole overall picture here. Verse 44 is interesting, and there's application in it for us. It says, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind to powder. The stone should be built upon, but some stumble over it rejectors will eventually be crushed by it. Now, commentators are kind of all over. I've read quite a few different takes on this verse, but most commonly what I've come across and what I think it means is there are some people that are broken by Jesus. Surrender. That's good. And then there's others that will be crushed to powder by this stone. Notice what he says there in verse 44. He says, Whoever and whoever, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind to powder. It seems like there's a contrast between two different types of people there, right? The one that falls on the stone and the one that the stone falls on. And if you take it in context here, it's the people that are humbled by Jesus and they come and they fall upon him. They fall at his feet. They worship him. They surrender to him. They're broken. Right? They've surrendered and submitted to his authority. 
this dog that I have is the first dog ever that I've, I've never had a dog that hasn't been broken eventually in the, in the good sense. Like you're trying to train your dog, you know, like, so it listens, you know, this dog that I have is the first dog ever that has never been broken in that sense and submitted to authority. Like ever, he totally bosses Aaron around and he tries to boss me around and like, I don't know. It's because I pampered him when he was a kid. I didn't discipline him because I thought, you know, hey, just I don't want to stifle him. You know what I mean? And and I spared the rod, and now I've spoiled the child. You know, and uh, but you know, you think about that. This we that that breaking of where we come to a point to where we recognize Jesus' authority, and we allow ourselves to be broken. We allow ourselves to be submitted to Him. I say, Lord, Lord, it's no longer for me that I live. It's for you that I live. It's no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. And we allow ourselves to be humbled and broken and submitted to him. We fall on the stone, so to speak. But there are others that refuse to fall on the stone. They refuse to be humbled by Jesus and by the cross and by what God has done. And they refuse to submit. And for them, they'll be ground up. They're going to they're gonna be judged. He's either the foundation that you build everything upon or he's the crushing stone. You could really divide everybody into two categories in any group of people like that. You've either been humbled and broken or you're on your way to being crushed. You've picked up your cross, denied yourself and come after him or you'll be destroyed in the end. It's a wonderful blessing of God's grace to be broken of our pride and rejection of Jesus Christ. Verse 45, Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Ha, got it, finally. They finally are tracking along here, you know. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So finally getting some points of Jesus' Bible study. And they're, oh yeah, he's talking about us. <laughs> Great. Let's arrest him. Well, we can't because we're concerned about what people think of us. So that parable illustrates what's going to happen with the church coming in and replacing the privileged position of Israel. So in conclusion, you can see Jesus has authority, and he let these religious rulers know that because they rejected him and his authority that they were facing judgment, they ought to have turned to him in belief, but rather they rejected him. Now, this causes us to examine ourselves today. This causes me to examine me. I realize that this is a room full of mostly Christians at all times, and so I, I look to myself, and I look for the application for a believer here today. One of them is just to rejoice in the privileged position you have of working in your father's vineyard, right? If you've been a Christian for like all of your life, maybe you don't appreciate what it is to not be working in your father's vineyard, you know, because it's bad out there. You know what I mean? It really is. You know, when you have a different master, like the masters that are in this world, you know, like maybe the master of money or the master of fame or looks or popularity or comfort or hobbies or fun or you just make the list. If you have one of these other masters, 
they're tough masters, but being in the vineyard with the Father as your master, that's the good life right there. And so if you've been walking with the Lord your whole life, I hope you appreciate that, you know. And those of you that haven't that have come in to the vineyard and started working, I bet you appreciate that because you say, man, my life before was going nowhere, you know, and you could have had everything as far as the world's concerned, but not had your own soul. And so that's a good application right there. Just appreciate the fact that you're living, working in the Father's kingdom. It's a great thing every day that he wake, when I wake up that I, that I sense him saying, go into my vineyard and work there, son. And I'm like, yeah. Praise the Lord, you know. Now, another application that's maybe not so friendly is to think about, hey, where are the areas in your life that you're rejecting Jesus' authority, right? Because th- there's no blessing in rejecting Jesus' authority or challenging his authority constantly, you know. Jesus has made some tall commands on Christians, right? Not to gain salvation, but because we have salvation. One of the greatest ones that that I'm wrestling with, I'll tell you what I'm wrestling with, is Jesus says that the two great commandments, okay, this is just what I'm wrestling with. He, He says it's to love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength is number one, and number two is to love your neighbor as yourself. I'm really wrestling with this love your neighbor as yourself thing because Jesus says it's the second and most important commandment. And I, and I say, you've got authority, Jesus. But then Jesus would look to me and say, if I have authority, why are you not doing the things I'm telling you to do, you know? And so I'm not trying to be harsh and condemning because I'm sure anybody in this room, I'm sure we could all say that there's some area of our life where Jesus has authority and we're, we're rejecting the authority of Jesus in it. And that's an application that just comes out of this. It's about authority and Christ having authority. And maybe today's the day where I just, you know, or you, we, we say, Jesus, whatever it takes, help me to surrender, to submit to that authority because I'd rather fall over the stone than be ground by it later you know, so to speak, to, to apply that to that. Authority. There's a great blessing in submitting to Jesus' authority. I find it so interesting the way that he asks us to submit, that he comes and he gives his life to us God shows us his love that when we were still sinners, that Christ died for us, that he comes to give us salvation by grace received through faith, that God comes to win our hearts through love. He's the humble, lowly king that comes in to win our hearts by love. And he says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give to you. The son of man came to serve, not to be served and to give his life a ransom for many. And the desired application then is that you'd see the love of God and you'd see what's been done and you would look at your life and you would say, you are worthy and I want to surrender my authority to you. You're the authority over my life. And I think that's a, that's a beautiful picture as we go to the table today, is you see God's gift of love and as you see it and as you receive it, you're, you're reminded of the proper response to that. Paul says it's your reasonable service is to offer yourself a living sacrifice to Jesus. So when I go to the Lord's table, there's frequently things that I need to confess and repent to the, you know, of when I go. And, and that's one of them today is just, just wrestling with his authority over my life. So maybe you're in that same boat. And this is a time to get freshened up, you know, whatever that is. And so Kenny's going to come up and hand out these elements here. And as he does... Um, Think about that. Receive the elements today as God's gift of love to you.
the proper response is to give everything back to him. Father, we thank you so much for your word here today, and we thank you mostly um, just this picture of your love and your authority. Lord, and I'd pray for myself personally and for anybody else here that really wrestles with authority issues, that subject of being submissive to you and loving you with our whole hearts, loving our neighbors, submitting to our neighbors as we submit to you. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to that end, and I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.